Welcome to The Writer's Edge, a podcast about what it takes to succeed as a writer in academia and beyond. I'm Dr. Eric Mason, faculty from the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at Nova Southeastern University, and faculty coordinator with the NSU Writing and Communication Center. Each month, we'll be bringing you multiple discussions with writers from all parts of the university to find out how writers think and work across the disciplines. We record out of Shark Tank Number 2 in the Writing and Communication Center, the programs of which are part of the NSU Quality Enhancement Plan. Special thanks to NSU professor Jessica Muniz Colado from the NSU College of Performing and Visual Arts, who wrote our theme music. Today, my guest is Dr. Richard Singer, director of the Masters of Science in the NSU College of Dental Medicine and the chair of the Postgraduate Orthodontic and Dentofacial Orthopedics Program. Welcome, Dr. Singer. My pleasure. I think that uh, the advent of the Writing Center is a huge asset for the university and great resource for students and faculty alike, and it's really my pleasure to be here. So you have a bunch of different labels, right? You're, you know, as many of us do as faculty, we're sort of faculty, like we're teachers, we're scholars, we are administrators, we are mentors. Uh, but I just want to start asking, you know, whether you see yourself as a writer, whether you identify in any way with that label. I do. Recently, I completed a PhD in epidemiology at the University of Miami. And in that capacity, particularly because it was an opportunity for me to have entree into the world of research and scientific publication, writing is a central part of my identity in that regard. Before you became a researcher, you know, before you started doing kind of seeing yourself as a graduate, you know, doing research, were you, did you consider yourself a writer before then of other kinds of things? You know? Well, it depends how far back we want to go. <laughs> uh, if we jump way back to the interview that I had when I was applying to my uh, postdoctoral residencies in orthodontics, my interview for that position began with the chair of the department commenting how the essay that I wrote on my application was among the most literate and erudite of essays he'd ever written. The follow-up question was, how did I manage to fail freshman English? (laughs) And I explained that I did fail freshman English, but I used that as an impetus actually to take my writing seriously. And it put me on a path of self-improvement. So throughout the various roles that I've played in my career, I've realized the importance of accurate and precise and succinct communication. And that's kind of guided me, whether it was drafting uh, patient or parent-related communications from my office, or the administrative documents that I write as in my capacity as the director of the master's program or director of orthodontics. We have many policy manuals that I've uh, authored and other policies that I've authored and uh, communication is very important, accurate communication is very important. You know, that's one thing I try to pass on to my students as well, that even if you don't think of yourself as a writer, you'll be doing a lot of writing, whether it's proposals, emails, applications, reports, Professionals have almost endless opportunities to use their communication skills to achieve their goals. Uh, And research shows that while writing skills are not highly correlated with getting a job, they are highly correlated with getting promoted once you have a job. So writing skill is an important skill to have to be recognized as a leader. Sure. One of the points I like to make to the students in our orthodontic residency who are required to complete the master's program as well, that the writing skills that they learn as part of their master's curriculum and in drafting their master's manuscript translate directly in terms of the kinds of writing that they'll do when they're in clinical practice and relay personal experiences where I've sent doctor communications on the diagnosis and treatment plan for a particular patient, say to a doctor who wasn't in my sphere of referrers. And shortly after receiving that letter, I might get a phone call to say, you know, nobody's ever written me a letter like that communicating the patient's needs before. Are you accepting new patients? (laughs) So I think they're practical applications to being able to communicate well. 
in humanities, we have this kind of ideal of the monograph, the, the single author who goes out and strives against the world and writes the book or the article. And it's changing over time, you know, it's getting better, but you know, collaboration is not a huge norm mm-hmm. in my field. It's not typical. Uh, but I saw an article that you were on about periodontal disease and cardiovascular disease, where there are 12 authors who collaborated. And I wonder how normal this is for you, how you look at that kind of writing process, mm-hmm. and also kind of how you might think about whether your students are prepared to do that. You know, is it, is it different than how I write, how you may have written in the past as a student? Mm-hmm. Well, many of the studies that I have been involved in recently are studies that derive their data from a new national study called the Hispanic Community Health Study Study of Latinos. Once a researcher such as myself has an idea for a study, which is usually based on a search of the literature and understanding what's known on that field, what might be novel, what might we be able to bring new to the discipline, we submit a proposal to the coordinating center of the national study. The data for this study was gathered at four field centers around the U.S. There's a cohort of over 16,000 people that supply data for the study. And basically anything that we can measure on a person or ask them to answer in a survey instrument is in our data set. Once I submit a proposal through the principal investigator from our field center, University of Miami, and once he approves it, it then goes to to the review committee of the coordinating center. Once they approve that study, by default, myself and the principal investigator are at least the first two authors on that study. Now, there may be other researchers that I know and I've worked with in the past from other field centers who have particular expertise on that subject area, so I may invite them to participate uh, on the study. And if I don't, the coordinating center will send notices to the principal investigators of the remaining three field centers. And if they can identify researchers who work in that general subject area, they can appoint them to be co-authors on my study. Do you kind of take different sections and draft? Well, so there's a lot of different approaches. When you submit a journal article for a publication, we need to justify the contributing role of each of the co-authors. And they have to make you know, what we put in quotes, a material contribution. Now, it could be in terms of actual writing, it could be in the analysis, could be interpretation of the results, could be in the lit review, just gathering the data and so forth, and summarizing that is then put into written form, or it could be one as reviewer, where they review the manuscript at various stages, at various drafts before it is actually submitted for publication. But each co-author has to play a contributing role to the overall manuscript. I think it's something that very much allows you to build a network of not only collaborators, but ultimately friends, people whose judgment you can learn from, uh, whose experiences you can learn from. And also, mutually, we present each other with opportunities that otherwise we wouldn't have exposure to. So does that model of publication and just writing, does that carry over into your classes or classes at the graduate level? Do they experience that? Or is once they graduate, is that the first time they'll get to be part of that process before they, say, get their doctorate? Well, so one of the courses that I teach in our department is what I call Thesis Research Seminar. And it's a six-session seminar to orient our students to the master's thesis enterprise, what's involved in doing research, what types of questions uh, need to be asked. The course has sessions that are usually spaced two to three weeks apart because I have lengthy assignments that the students have to complete prior to each session. And then usually the sessions involve some type of oral presentation, and some type of peer review, and some type of collaborative effort. One of the the learning outcomes of my course is the value of collaboration among peers. 
each of my sessions is geared around getting helping each of the students contribute to the efforts of the student who's making his oral presentation, let's say his or her oral presentation. So I really try to let them understand the strength and collaboration and how sometimes just to be able to think out loud and have feedback from somebody is something that uh, really helps develop the creative process. I think professors in a lot of fields value that in their own work mm -hmm. and sometimes struggle with how to transfer that to the classroom where students are sometimes a little defensive about how grades work and how, how to measure contribution mm -hmm. and you know, to make sure things are fair. And so I think in our composition classes, I think we have a lot of collaboration where people do bounce ideas and they share drafts and they get peer review. But then when it comes down to turning in the final product, it's still like sole, single, you know, a singular author listed on that. Um, despite the fact that every scholarly work that I show my students has an acknowledgments page with sure. 20 people on it, I think they still see that as kind of something nice to do, but not really a substantive part of the writing process for them. I was reading a in-house publication where they were talking about the College of Dental Medicine interviewing students in your program, uh, one of which said that you were a great mentor, uh, which I think is excellent praise from a graduate student. And you said as well, in writing is sort of about the kinds of things you want students to do, that you, you said students are doing studies on topics that are of current interest, yet even the most outstanding research has no potential for impact if it doesn't get disseminated to a wider scientific community. With your mentorship, how do you sort of bring students to the point where you feel like they are ready or willing or planning to see their, their research as being part of our community of academics, of scholars, of researchers, of dentists? Sure. So I think that oftentimes we might tend to think of mentorship as related to the particular subject area or the particular activity that we mentor our students on. For example, students in a master's program, so my responsibility is limited to mentoring them and giving them guidance and giving them stewardship and review of their thesis manuscript, and that's the end of my responsibilities. But I think that mentorship has the opportunity to take on a much wider definition. And I draw on that from my own personal experiences with mentors that I have in my life. And I think that for me, I look back at the best mentors that I've had as those people that I'm still friends with today because our mentorship went above and beyond just the manuscript that I was working on at the time. I think that as mentors, we have an obligation to contribute to the wider education of our students. And that may also lead in terms of facilitating their career development. And in that regard, uh, I think the doors are wide open. I've always considered we have a responsibility to, to be good role models for them, to model ethical behavior, to model uh, work ethic, to model honesty and integrity, personal integrity in the way that we approach the things that we're responsible for. I try to give cues and to be a good role model to the students that I mentor. And I try to create opportunities for them to expand their vision in, in terms of their career path and in terms of potential to publish and in terms of kind of helping them extend beyond what they thought they were capable of. There was one year where I was mentoring three students and when the students uh, get to the point that they're ready to do their, the public defense of their thesis, I like to conduct that public uh, presentation, introduce the students, say a few kind words about them, and the three students presented on three consecutive days and when I came to the third one, I was kind of used up all the introductions that I had at my uh, ready and I was kind of struggling for how I was going to introduce the students, so I found myself saying something to the effect of, I think that the sign of a good mentor is that person who finds exactly which buttons to push that we can help the student exceed any of their expectations in terms of their own performance, 
but not push so hard that we break them. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fine balance. That definitely you know, seems like the kind of mentor I think students would want, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't sort of settle, doesn't let them sort of take the easy path. Because right. certainly, especially in terms of writing and publication, right. uh, you know, you can do a, you know, a thesis or dissertation that, that passes, but maybe isn't publishable Correct. very easily afterwards. And so one of my mentors always kind of said, you know, think of your dissertation as a book. You know, if you're thinking of it as a book when you go in, you don't have to do much work after the fact to kind of, you know, get it ready for publication. Right. You know, it, Yes, dissertations and books are different genres, but you know they can be written in such a way so that the the transition is less painful. Right, I think that's than a, it could be. I think that's a great point. And then I also try to give an added incentive. For example, with the students that I think that are doing studies that uh, merit publication, uh, based on their significance to the field and their, their depth and breadth, let's say. Uh, I usually strike a range, an, an agreement with them when they are preparing to graduate. And the arrangement is something like this. I'll tell them that, you know, when we start with a 100 to 200 page manuscript in their thesis, uh, master's thesis, to distill that down to a 3,000 word publishable article for a journal, it's, you know, no trivial task. And so usually I'll strike a bargain with them that something like, I'll give you the next 12 months to get a manuscript ready, and if you do that, I'll support the publication and you can be first author and I'll be second author. And if it goes more than 12 months, then I'll write it, and you'll be second author, and I'll be first author. <laughs> and I don't do that because I need the publications. I just do it as a motivation. To date, I haven't taken a student's manuscript and published it myself. But I try to give them some impetus, some motivation to keep working beyond graduation so that they can actually have something that will support their, their CV. I like that approach, especially even like the deadline, the, the sort of timeline, because certainly people graduate and sometimes they take jobs right away and it, it can be hard to get back to that text right. and improve it, but uh, give yourself that sort of deadline, which I think all writers have to do, you know, think about the scheduling of getting writing done. I know people whose, you know, Thursday is their writing day or Saturday afternoons is their time, like, you know, but setting aside time, thinking in terms of long-term planning, uh, these are all things that sometimes academics aren't good at mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes they're really good at analysis or really good at being maybe in front of the class and teaching sometimes the mechanics or the administration of scholarship mm-hmm. demands some attention from us as well to let students know that it isn't just about how brilliant you are but about how hardworking you are mm-hmm. how ethical you are how collaborative and how collegial you are right you know right. with others and so we talked a little bit about publication you know to the kind of academic community and I wonder if you have anything to say about the kind of broader uh, public. And certainly we live in a time where I think there is some public distrust of science, of experts, or at least some attacks on science and the kind of knowledge that gets disseminated through things like academic journals. Are we preparing our students to talk to the broader public? Is there a role for our students or our classes in preparing those students you know, to go out there and be sort of public intellectuals in any way? Well, I think there are two avenues where that's very important. First avenue uh, is something that I feel very fortunate to participate in as one of the contributors to the science that's coming out of the Hispanic Community Health Study. By design, where, as I mentioned earlier, we're dependent on the 16,000-plus individuals who are volunteering their time to be poked and prodded and measured and answer surveys and so forth to provide the data that we all use in our publications. One of the, the design features of the broader study is that the results of any of the published studies get translated to lay person level and also translated into Spanish and then are disseminated through the website for the national study so that those who are contributing to our knowledge 
can share in our knowledge and understand what our findings are and the implications that they might have. It's, it's one way that a researcher can uh, demonstrate his appreciation for the time and effort that the patients or the respondents to our studies, uh, who contribute to our studies, get feedback on the fruits of, uh, of their efforts. So I think that's very important. And then in the capacity that I wear a hat as oral health epidemiologist, uh, there's a very interesting idea of advocacy, particularly when it comes to public policy. And I think that in, the, in a field like epidemiology, where we're looking at public welfare, public health, distribution of diseases on a population level, that our outcomes of our studies have implications for the general population. So how does that get disseminated? And is it sufficient that it's disseminated only through our scientific journals? And I would argue that probably, yes, there's a role for that, but it's not sufficient. When we have important findings that have potential for significant impact on public health, one could argue easily that the scientist has an obligation then to advocate. So are most of the journals that you publish in, are they open access in some ways, or is, the, or is it just that the data, the results get distributed in both sort of formats, both open to the public and to subscribers? Right, so I'd say both. So as you're probably aware, the advent of open access journals is not an easy one necessarily to, to traverse. There are those journals that are ethical, high-impact journals that have a lot of credibility and those that are the opposite end of the spectrum. So I think that selection of the correct open access journals, I think that's a huge, huge service that is now available to the public. I'd like to see more support on campus for the open access public publishing because I think that there's an important role for scientists to play in distributing their findings that way. But I, you know, I can't speak for other researchers, but you know, for me, with the work that I've been able to do with Hispanic Community Health Study, I know that it's built into the, the design of the study, that we do give back to the population that we were dependent on. For these students that come into your classes, are there things that they believe about writing, like things that you feel you have to get them to forget, get them to sort of unlearn that they've learned through the rest of their college or high school career? Are there things that you try to pass on to your students about writing that they don't know yet? Well, so that's a really interesting question, and it really ties into why is it uh, that we have a writing component as part of the curriculum for the, our master's program. And it goes back to when I first was charged with being the director of the master's program. One of the first steps that I took was to canvas the faculty that had served prior to that time as mentors. What are the strengths and the weaknesses that the students are bringing in to this, to this new line of uh, effort for them, the academic effort? And almost universally, across from mentor to mentor, the two subject areas that they felt students had the lowest skill sets in were statistical analysis and writing. And so armed with that information, I reviewed the curriculum at the time that I took over the program, and we immediately added a more advanced statistics class for those students who were going on and doing the masters, and we attempted to add a, a scientific writing course. And I would say that for whatever skill level students come, come in at, whatever their writing skill level is, I think very few of them have an understanding of the unique nature of scientific writing compared to any type of writing that they've done in the past. I think that the technical aspects of writing science are probably most critical when you're looking at writing an article with a word limit for, uh, to be published in a scientific journal. Imagine you have 3,000 words, uh, sometimes including the number of words you have in your figures or illustrations or tables. So you have to be very succinct, and yet you have to communicate exactly, precisely, what you did methodologically, why what you did is important, what the implications are, and then, of course, everything related to your study, like what your findings are, your 
discussion about what your findings mean and how that relates to the current state of knowledge, other, other published articles. If you contrast that to the way a student writes a, uh, a master's thesis, let's say, where there are no word limits, and they can expound as much or as little as they choose to, if they, they're free to go back as far as history of the topic as much as they want and write as much as they want about it. So the disciplines are similar, but they're very different in terms of the level at which they have to be performed. So when it comes to writing a journal article, what I'd like students to keep in mind, the first part of the journal article is the introduction, where the first sentence, I always let them know there should be something that should capture any reader's attention and make them want to read the second sentence. If you lose them in the first sentence, they're not finishing the article. And in that introduction, I liken the introduction to a funnel, where we take our reader by the hand, willingly or unwillingly, and we drag him through a set of facts that are all referenced. We can't make things up in our introduction that uh, support the importance of our study. We drag them through these facts that both explain why this topic is important, what's known about the topic, and what isn't known about the topic. And I explained that it should be so well written that by the time that the reader gets to the last sentence of the introduction, where the sentence begins, and therefore the purpose of the study is, any reader should be able to answer the rest of the, that question. The writer should have laid such a great foundation and such a great introduction that it's clear that this is the next salient issue that has to be dealt with. Yeah, it's like you explain where the gap is, and then it becomes obvious that you're about to fill that gap with you know, new information. Exactly right. Our QEP here is all about writing. You know, for the next five years, I guess, we're sort of focusing on improving people's writing skills and giving support to that through workshops and things like this podcast series, getting people to exchange ideas. I wonder what you think about the university's support of writing of us as researchers and scholars. Well, I can talk a little bit about that personally. And from my perspective, uh, NSU and the College of Dental Medicine in particular have been very supportive of my efforts. For example, uh, being given the opportunity to be the director both of the orthodontic program and also of the master's program for our college allowed me uh, the opportunity to learn and then develop and refine administrative skills. And that's a, a skill area that I value tremendously and that was a, a, a pretty large learning curve for me. But I appreciate having that opportunity that uh, might otherwise not have been, been available. When it comes to my scholarly activities as a researcher, in our college, full-time faculty are allowed one day for personal development a week. And when I was accepted into the doctoral program at the University of Miami, our dean afforded me two days for personal development, which provided the time for me to not only take the courses that I need to take in person at UM, but also provided time for the, my research and my writing and the other activities that were associated with the research that I, that I needed to pursue there. So um, there have been a huge number of opportunities that working within the framework of the College of Dental Medicine have just had a huge impact on my professional life. It's something I appreciate tremendously. Richard, thank you for speaking with us today. You've been a great guest, and I look forward to conversations with you in the future about writing. Great. I look forward to it, too, and I really appreciate the opportunity to come in and support the Writing Center. And I hope that students and faculty both will avail themselves of the This podcast is a production of the Nova Southeast University Writing and Communication Center. If you are an NSU student or faculty interested in improving your writing or teaching, visit us on the fourth floor of the Alvin Sherman Library on the Navy campus. In future episodes, we will feature discussions with other faculty and community members, as well as showcase student podcasting projects. 
listening and